0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You were so hard to hold on to. Then every tear I cry, start to realize... Never get over you.
1: I'm loving I right now I'm just loving the music. <laughs> I don't you wanna
0: start? Guitar is a great help.
1: Yeah, hey. And, oh, you stopped playing. Okay, that's my cue. Welcome to episode 36 of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang, the podcast brought to you by Extension Marketing. And for more information, you can always check out extensionmarketing.com. Sean McCann is a Newfoundland boy who grew up on the rock, eventually went on to become a founding member of one of Canada's biggest bands called Great Big Sea. The group had fun songs, some hit songs, big hits, and found amazing success selling millions of albums across Canada and around the world. Sean also found love, he had kids, and then eventually he hit rock bottom. So to take a paragraph from his website, because I thought the website, the about section was just really beautifully written. John Lennon once sang, you can live a lie until you die. One thing you can't hide is when you're crippled inside. Now, Sean eventually left Great Big C publicly admitting a secret past where he used alcohol to mask the pain of sexual abuse by a priest with his boys, who I have to say are just amazing two wonderful boys and his wife, Andrea, who's become really one of my greatest friends. Uh, he found the motivation to be able to face the truth uh to be able to look back and to overcome his demons so today we're talking about that journey as a singer a songwriter a husband a father uh and really most effectively right now a public speak a speaker and a mental health advocate and with him on all of these different trips and all these places that he goes he always has with him old brown by his side old brown it's his guitar, and there's Old Brown right there, uh, who's actually made it in to the studio with us. Sean, it's great to see you.
0: It's great to see you, amigo. Oh,
1: like I, and I, I love it. I love that you brought the guitar. I think um, it, it's been with you for so long, it, like when you wrote your first song, I think, right?
0: Yeah, it's my first guitar, and I, was, I bought him uh, for $800 uh, at a little small place in St. John's called Davis Music. And at the time, Leanne, I didn't know how to play guitar. I was singing in bands, and I was being told what key to sing in by the guitar players and the accordion players and stuff. And I felt like it wasn't the right key for me sometimes. So I wanted my independence. So I bought this guitar as a, a, it was an attempt to, to to win freedom. But I didn't know how to play a single chord, and uh, and now I know all three chords, <laughs> and I can play in whatever key I want to do. So, uh, but this he's been more of an instrument, more than an instrument. He's uh, he's really been a friend to me, like um, you know, especially. Since I've made these big changes, which really cost me a lot of friends, quote-unquote friends, this is the guitar that, uh, this is the friend that never left. And, and that's how I, I, I feel about music now. Uh, even though I've been involved in it for so long, it almost took me 30 years to figure out what the real reason for music is, and that is to help us, just like a good friend would.
1: You know, because sometimes I, w- I would look at it like a security blanket, but it is it's far more than that. Like to have you know old brown with you, it's not the security blanket. It's really kind of the keeper of everything for you.
0: For me, it's where you know the truth can be a hard thing to face, and uh, but I believe it's necessary to get anything productive done. Like if you want to solve a problem, you have to acknowledge it. But this is a weapon for deal for doing that. Like. Mm-hmm dealing with difficult things so yes it is a security blanket i always bring it no matter where i go even if i don't play it because i want them around because i feel that friendship but i know if you know if if i need to do something if i need to do the hard work which is always based in the truth and and the thing we we as humans we avoid the most uh, this is the this is a way i can get in there and do that
1: we're gonna take a really interesting journey on this on this chat, and I'm I'm really grateful for you coming in because schedule is crazy busy. Even trying to keep up socially with <laughs> when is Sean in town? Kids are a huge time. Uh, can you imagine that? So I, I, love this. We met actually in studio. You came to CTV Morning Live. Uh, it was the first time that we met. I like were you? I think you were going to be playing at the NAC. There was something that you were going to be that you were promoting.
0: It may have been the vets guitars for vets thing.
1: No, That's what I'm that thinking. no, that was like that was way out. I've been here a while. You, yeah. you haven't. So I, you guys were new to the city.
0: I was doing a show, I guess. Yeah, and I came in and I met you, and I was yes. lucky. Sometimes you get lucky.
1: You get okay, and I we started talking, and it was so funny because all of my co-hosts and everything. I'm like, does th- does Sean not remind you of Tony, my husband? And I was like, there was something very similar between the two of you, and yes, well, she's
0: very attractive as well. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'll let him know that you said that, Sean. (laughs) Um, You know, like different backgrounds, I mean, Tony had a, a lot of the kind of the athleticism, not that you didn't, but like both still managed to kind of find your way into the arts. And I liked you. Like, I just like, oh, my God, you reminded me of Tony. And I'm like, we and you have two young boys who are the exact same age as uh, Keegan and Finn are exactly the same age as Andy and Jamie. And I'm like, okay, like, this is going to be let's let's you're new to the city. Let's meet up. Let's get our families together. Let let me introduce you to people in Ottawa. And then I realized that I had I had to pass the gatekeeper. You're like. (laughs)
0: Talk I had, to, to, my, I, talk to, I my had to pass
1: the approval of Andrea, which didn't happen because we, you know, you, you kind of tweet person and you kind of message somebody. And then it wasn't until we were at the, at the American, the ambassador's house. There was a... Where the, you met Andrea, that's where right. Where I yeah. met Andrea and I got the clearance. It was like, I met Andrea, she gave us the all clear, we passed through the gate. And from then on, it's been really great. nice. Heyman. Yeah, it was the Heymans. The prior, the prior
0: yeah. ambassador. hmm Yeah, that was when, the we had
1: When we when we wanted to be able to support and... And follow up with our American. Yeah,
0: exactly, things were lighter. <laughs> I don't than. think
1: we're going back to the ambassador. <laughs> I haven't been invited days. back. No. <laughs> no, 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 I'm too mind.
0: left, I'm too left sided. Uh,
1: and I, I value this friendship. I think it's been great. I love the fact that you and Tony actually have this kind of, this unique bond. I think, and just being able to talk from an artistic.
0: Yeah, i I've always things. been uh, interested in the visual arts, and Tony's a great artist, and uh, so that struck me right away. His talent. But he, uh, he's very uh, astute with music, he's, uh, he, he listens to a lot of music mm-hmm. while he works, and every time we talk, it's uh, sometimes it's about visual stuff, but generally he has a lot of questions about bands and music, yeah. like he's fascinated by it, which I find really interesting. And I think we both come from a hockey background, which is weird <laughs> to find ourselves in this situation. And I think well he's multi-sports, but uh, no, but you guys have that. We have a similar yeah. path, yeah, for sure. He's a good fella.
1: Uh, he understands are, me, I think. I think he does. I think he he gets. I think he gets sometimes the torment too of, of of creating something and then having it opened up to the world to see and kind of waiting for that approval or you torment know,
0: you, is a good word. Is torment
1: a good word? Okay, yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, but also surviving if you choose the life in the art in the arts world, then you. You know, commercially, how do you how do you make a living? You know, and uh, so not only do you surrender, you know, the, the better part of your heart to the to the public, but you also have to find a way to to earn money. You know, and uh, and as a painter and as a songwriter, that's those those particular mediums are under a lot of pressure in the technology uh, advanced mm-hmm. world, where are you know our what we actually do. Monetarily has been devalued, you know, in, in many ways because it's uh, so easily shared. You know,
1: the the conversations around the dinner table have always been great. Andrea, by the way, your wife is the most amazing cook ever. So anytime we're sitting around that island, it's just it's we're hard. in for great, great food and really good conversation. And eventually, the kids destroy the basement in some form of whatever game they're opting. play
0: certain level of destruction (laughs) always hard to be uh, hard to be small in our house it's a a battle
1: (laughs) there's different battles that are faced in the house and and one of the things when we first came over was uh do we bring do I bring a bottle of wine Oh yeah, yeah. you know like I remember it kind of being like I, I I wasn't sure and because we were kind of socializing having I never knew you as the old Sean McCann you know like i have only known you in this uh, kind of like this the next the second phase of your life and so it's interesting to kind of sometimes have to remind myself that there was a very different past to you
0: yes i mean i uh there was a the phrase used to describe me or relationships with my for my friends and uh they would often say last night I got McCanned last night. <laughs> that was literally, a, I became a, what is that, an adverb? <laughs> so if you were out with me, you know, my former self, you, you were out late and you were gonna be in, you're gonna be damaged by the next morning. I was a pretty intense drinker and user of any kind of intoxicant. Um, and uh, you know, that was, that was my life for 30, 35 years. So the changes were not small. So the person you see before you and the person you met was very different. I don't think at my core I like. I think I'm similar in many ways, personality-wise. But it was a, it was a big thing to put down, and uh, and at, you know, and then you show showing up. With, but I'm okay with it now, like for whatever reason, and I can't even explain it. But I am not j- tempted by that. Like when you show up with a mm-hmm. glass of wine mm-hmm. or whatever, I just you know what you know. Reasonable drinking is not something I'm drawn to. Like I just I know that I can't be there. But I'm okay with you.
1: Okay, let's, let's go back, if we can. Because we were kind of like, this is where we are now, and this is, this is wonderful, and there's friendships, and there's life, and there's stories to be told. Uh, and it was a very different start. So you, you, grew, actually, you grew up in Newfoundland. You were, born, you were
0: born on the rock. I was born in Newfoundland at a little place called Carboneer, which you know is, not, is about, about two hours from St. John's, where I was eventually raised in the Catholic school system. And back there, like they, uh, there was the Catholic school board and what we call the Protestant school board, which is the all the other churches basically. And Newfoundland is uh, that was pretty much it though. Like Newfoundland is pretty white, you know, and uh, Western. There, we didn't have many eth- ethnic mm-hmm. diversity. It was Irish or English, Catholic, Protestant, and versus was very much part of it, on the hockey rink or in the churches, and uh, that's where I came up. That's where I grew up.
1: Uh, siblings? Like, was it a big household? I mean...
0: Two brothers, and I'm the oldest. So I started it out. Um, And there's a fairly big spread. Myself and my my first brother is 10 months apart. That's called uh, Irish Twins. And uh, my other younger brother is Kevin. He's in Halifax. Um, He's seven years younger.
1: Okay, so there's a bit of a difference. Was you were active sports? Like, were you musically inclined as a kid? Like, did you enjoy singing? Were you drawn to music
0: always where loved were you singing. drawn to
1: because when you're on the rock like there's i don't want to say there's not that much you know but you you find funds how where
0: i uh, well we entertain ourselves but early like when i was a kid like there's a recording of me singing i was singing before i could walk there's a recording of me singing the night that patty murphy died before i could walk before i was two Really? I was a talk. I would talk you early. You could talk. Okay. I could yeah. talk really early. Yeah. And singing was how I was always there. So there's all recordings of that. I got to find them and get them digitized.
1: You actually, there's recordings of it. There's a. Oh, we so we cool.
0: pull it out every Christmas to to listen to some of these things. And there, here's me singing Patty Murphy and The Wild Colonial Boy when I'm two years old. And apparently I was, uh, you know, singing all the time, which is like Finnegan is like that, my son now. But when I got to grade kindergarten grade one uh they knew i had some musical aptitude but they put me in uh, piano lessons with the nuns which was a which kind of was which honestly and uh, i just it didn't work out for me <laughs> so after one year of that i stopped so i didn't really learn how to read music and um again i didn't pick up a guitar till i was 23 so i was you know i i went down a different path i think i think it's what i've learned is if you want to Go down the path of music. If you want your children to, the best thing is not force them to do anything. Or, The best thing you can do is find someone who's actually a leader, a mentor. And the best teachers I've found are the ones that ask their students, what do you want to learn how to play? And when, when you know what you want to learn how to play, mm-hmm. you will play it.
1: But did you know but you didn't know you wanted to learn how to play until you're in a band and they're telling you to sing a certain key and you're like, I, I need to go figure out how to learn guitar. Like had you been given the option at ten to say, Sean, would you you know that so. I would I have liked to you would have.
0: I think I would have been more interested in that. And uh, you know, all that uh, hockey was like the main Canadian religion anyway, so that's where we all gravitated to. But I really regret not having put in some extra time then like uh, that wasn't seen as a viable or uh, important thing you know and I've come to learn that for not financial reasons but mental health reasons like music is a huge I wish I had more of it when I was under the duress you know for the bad times in my teenage years. I didn't have access to music then in the sense that I could play it or sing it mm-hmm. I was in full hockey mode and uh, I could listen to it and but I, I didn't really know what it was about. I didn't get involved with it until I was 19,
1: 20, 21. So it wasn't like you were listening to the lyrics, the the songwriting or the lyrics of a song or anything that would, that Maybe, would connect like with remember, you. Maybe.
0: I remember listening to Pink Floyd, The Wall. That's the first record that I really was drawn into. And, uh, and in retrospect, I can see why. But the lyrics, I remember... Uh, I I could, I related because it was, you know, it was at, at the time, you know, when I was in having a, a really hard time and I could relate to those things. And I started to have the inkling that music was more important than, than I knew.
1: When you talk about, you know, going through a rough time and, and the dark, the dark days, uh, at, from when you were growing up, at what age? Like you were, you were Sundays at church. Every you Sunday. Were, you were every Sunday at church and the church important in the household like
0: yeah in particular our our, I think we were Catholics were we were not lapsed not lazy Catholics we were at you know every every Sunday and my family had a history with the church which I've been working on a book with Andrea and I've digging into this my great great uncle was the first new bishop that came from Newfoundland to be a Newfoundland bishop and my uh, my mother's family her parents worked for the church, for him, uh, a lot of them did. So my family lived in the shadow of the church, probably more than most. We were literally in their house, and those people, uh, those priests and those bishops, they had extreme power. Um, back in the day, and 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 that extended to when I was a kid. But but I'm trying to figure out how what happened to me. You know how the abuse was overlooked or how it could even exist like we seem to have opened our eyes to it it's a different generation with the me too generation and the many uh the many horrible things that the catholic church has now admitted to and they're trying to hold accountable to they've done a job a poor job of being accountable but at least now we know what can happen
1: well i think there's been a media there's been a media base to it, there's been storytelling, there's been exposés, there's been movies, uh, which I think helped, I think the an outsider understand, like, how widespread it was and how it was so well hidden.
0: Yeah, the, it was, it was systemic, you know, and, uh, and I believe that, you know I. It's a really hard subject in my family, and, for, and it's hard for me to poke around here, and uh, I'm having a hard time with the book that way. You mean way.
1: poking around to write this book. To
0: figure out, like, what I'm trying to figure out. I know what happened to me, and I know what the repercussions were and the, and the, and the damage and stuff, but I was, what I keep trying to look for, and I guess it's typical of many victims, is why, how? Because uh, my parents were not unreasonable people. They were smart people, right? But I think that indoctrination is a dangerous thing.
1: Because you, you spoke out, you mentioned it to your parents, like when you had said something's happening. I had said you- it in
0: a song, you know, I said it in Hold Me Mother, and then I said it, you know, then after a couple of months of that song sinking in, and then I said it. But honestly, it, it's not something my parents wanted to hear about.
1: Even how, if it was how old true. were you when you were able to say it out loud to your parents?
0: Oh, that was in uh, that was five years ago. <laughs> that was I'm I'm 51, Hungry. so I was 45, 46. Like you know, whenever "Hold Me, Mother," that record came out. That's how I thought I I thought it was pretty clear in that song, but people don't people don't want to hear truth that they don't want to hear. You
1: know. So, in. As it was happening, as you were a child and your teenage years going through this experience, there was no speed. There was Oh, no, there that was...
0: was impossible for me to. Uh, there was no. I couldn't see a way. I didn't. This was just something I was going to bury as a secret. I didn't think this was going to go over well. And I don't think I was wrong. It didn't go over well when I was 46. You know, uh, and I think that's why. And di- I think. That's why indoctrination is so dangerous because it's what it what it does is create a sense of there's no freedom to question. The truth is not important when you're indoctrinated. A truth our version of the truth which in in the Catholic church is the priest has all the power. You don't question the priest. The priest is God. You know? So what do you do when God commits a crime?
1: what age did the did the abuse start for you? Fifteen. And it lasted until you were able to get like I mean.
0: Yeah, it lasted a little while, but it, it you know it all kind of happened started on a retreat uh, pilgrimage to Rome, which is where you know my first drink was served to me by this priest, and the abuse happened on that uh, that trip, and. Uh, it didn't last long after that. I mean, the, emotionally it was even worse, but it I was just, uh, it was something that really couldn't, still can't really figure out. <laughs> but it was, it was something I chose to bury. It was a truth that, that I really couldn't handle. And I think a lot, there was a lot of shame, but this priest had endeared himself to me and to my family. And what hurt most was we, we looked at him as a friend. We, he was, he was my brother. He was a second father. He was a son to my father. The betrayal was intense, and uh, that's what hurts. That's what hurts the most today.
1: Is still the betrayal, like of a person that you had looked at as a friend or as a father figure, or I
0: was groomed to, you know, and I was built up. In my, you know, my at the time I, when I was in started high school, I was bullied. So I was vulnerable anyway, and I think that's what these people do. They look for vulnerable people. I was a smart kid, I was a good kid, you know. And, um, but he, he was attracted to me, I guess, or whatever, but he was, he, you know, I was, it was premeditated in retrospect. And it just, it just hurt, hurt it hurt an enormous amount. And it still hurts, so the problem I have is how do you cope with it when you just when it hurts so much, and a coping mechanism uh, is booze
1: Did you start to drink after that? I mean I started that...
0: to drink with him, uh, he started me uh, drinking, but I never stopped i mean he uh, he went away eventually, but I just kept by the time I finished high school i would I would argue that I was an alcoholic, and that my future was uh, very much different than what it would have been if I had, if all that hadn't happened.
1: The drinking for you wasn't that you were constantly in search of, um, of a drink. It, it it was more when you, when you had the drink, it was, it was excessive.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would drink a lot. I could, uh, I mean, I could function. I was a highly functioning alcoholic but I always knew I'd have, all kinds of opportunities and free drink and, you know, Great Big C was a, you know, it was a party band and it wasn't an act, you know, like we, <laughs> we drank. <laughs> I drank the most for sure. Uh,
1: okay. But- well, when did, when did Great Big C, like when did that, when did the musical aspect of, because I get that the, the party continued, especially with this band, like at what age were you when... That started to form, like your the band, the the music. That this was going to be something that you could do for a living.
0: Well, in high school, I played hockey at the high school hockey, which was a big thing in back then. So I played defense. So I was I was pretty good. I was never really super competitive, but I was good enough to make the team all the time and dependable. Uh, when I got to university, though, um, I ended up doing I f- I I wasn't good enough to be junior. I wasn't that good, so I ended up. I had had no athletic thing, and music started to come in. I ended up doing a philosophy degree. I was, I was, I was searching then for reasons uh, yeah, why. Yeah, okay, gonna... <laughs> The reason I went into that is because I could ask freely, ask questions, and really ta- dig into why, why the big whys. Which you know is good and bad because what I've learned, uh, unless you have a faith that explains it for you, you know. Um, there is no answer.
1: There was nothing you were going to find in a textbook. No. So, or there was no wise professor that could give you that answer.
0: Well, there's no right why yeah. for any, I don't believe for anything. And that's the problem with organized religion in my mind, like in indoctr- indoctrination is because it's like here, it preys on people who are, hey, we need answers. We, we can't live this life because we don't know what happens after it. Why are we here? And religions have come up with the answers to those impossible to answer questions. In my opinion, but at least pursuing a philosophy degree, I became somewhat con- comfortable with the fact that there really wasn't a right answer to anything like that, and there was a million ways to think about it. So I learned how to think, you know, which is good and bad, I guess. Uh, but I also to replace probably the the hockey thing that I was, you know, you know what? Yeah, you went from like,
1: you went from being uh, at the rink all the time to not making a team in university, and then you're left with.
0: Yeah, and I'm doing time. a philosophy degree, right. so all I did, you know, I I wasn't under the math uh, deadlines. I abandoned that language. And I had all kinds of I found myself in pubs and in St. John's, working in bars. In St. John's, um, I would argue, well, it has the most bars per capita, so that's easy, but it also has a really strong music scene. Been known for it for a year, and not just traditional music, rock and roll, reggae, blues. Uh, It's the kind of place where a lot of artists wash up and stay, international artists, British guys, Irish guys, all kinds of great singers. So we, I fell into that. I mean, and and as I mentioned, like at the age of two, it was like music went away for a while, but then I had it, I was able to sing and I was asked to sing. I used to sing at parties, which were all every, every night and I, and I was able to sing in key. And it was approached, Bob asked me to sing in his first band. And that was Rankin Street that turned into our first little band. And uh, I loved it. I was like, yeah, I can do this. I'll do this instead. You know, and I've always had a lot of energy. And uh, so ended up being the kind of the uh, the, the agent or ma- manager of that little band. And we used to play five nights a week in all these bars. We had no shortage. And we used to make $100 each a night, which was a ton of money then. And uh, you know what's the strange thing? It's the same now. It's still 100 <laughs> bucks a night. Hasn't changed in thirty-five
1: years. You invested. You invested well. Plus, I would take it. Free booze while you're on stage. Free booze and there you go. And, and, all, you're, and, and, you're and girls would yeah. be
0: seeing us under the yeah. lights, and you know,
1: you look good under those lights, right? Well, yeah.
0: depending on the lights, I think. But so, there you go.
1: So you're playing your way through university. Yeah, and I you're made enough making money to pay off my loan. Yeah, you're making money. You're playing music and you're partying hard.
0: Constantly, every night. Did you
1: graduate with a philosophy degree? Did I you did. actually? You graduate. What was the what university?
0: At Memorial University of St. John's. Is
1: that the big university out there? Yeah, and it yeah. is pretty big. I think yeah. there's
0: like 18,000 students there.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: So and it's, it, it only opened in the 70s, so it's a, not been around a long time. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how it rates university-wise. I think it has a strong medical school. <laughs> I don't know about the philosophy <laughs> department. I have no idea how it would rate. I don't know how I would rate as a philosopher, but it put me on a path. And um,
1: Although I, I have to say, because I know you're a big reader, uh, yeah. You read a lot. And I would think that that still it follows that there, there was an actual like an innate interest in it because it still is with you. You're still constantly reading.
0: Yeah, I don't like I, I'm, I'm always drawn to the hard questions too, right? Like I want I do I don't like I don't read light stuff. So philosophy was a good fit. But I mean, that whole scene um, of being a philosophy student, if you're a songwriter, you're a philosophy student, so, and that's where I ended up being. I mean, for, I thought I'd be a lawyer. Like, part of me argued that uh, if, at a philosophy undergraduate degree was, a, was not a bad degree to have because it taught you how to think and you could, if you want to go into the law profession. But I, I'm, glad I, I'm glad that didn't happen. <laughs> so I ended up, you know, being a songwriter, which is far, far more risky, but you'd probably do a lot less damage.
1: When did the pairing with uh, Alan uh, and Great Big C then occur?
0: Well, Bob and I uh, were in this band called Rankin Street with Daryl. Found Daryl at at the Rose and Thistle Pub, which is a small bar. And Daryl was, uh, he was a good guitar player, but he also knew every song, like he was a human jukebox. And he was a real nice guy, and we hit it off. We used to... uh, used to enjoy having having a drink together among other things and uh and i'll leave that at that but uh
1: he would get mccann with you
0: he would get mccann he was he was the early early on getting mccann and uh arguably i got daryl a few nights too and uh so we got it all we got along really well myself and daryl for sure and um we wanted to be in a band and you know so we, we kept at it but our We weren't that we weren't that good, like we weren't good with the audience. We weren't we all wanted to play. We were we were focused really on the traditional music and we could only get so far because there were so many traditional bands and we eventually just ran out of gas and we're like, okay, well, we all finished our degrees and I went on and started doing a master's in folklore, which was really boring. And um, while I was doing that, I kept my eye on on what was happening in Newfoundland and, and bands started to get signed by record companies. Uh, I think the first one was Ron Hines, the Irish Descendants got signed, Ashley McIsaac, okay. Rankins, yeah. like, and yeah. there were all these Celtic bands, and we were like, we just quit at the wrong time, because we were good, like we were as yeah. good as them, arguably, and uh, so I was always out, and I started doing solo stuff, because I couldn't put the guitar down once I figured it out, and I happened to go, I left a gig I was doing at a bar called Nautical Nelly's, walked across the street to the Rose and Thistle, where I met Daryl mm-hmm. five years earlier, and Alan Doyle was in a band called Staggering Home, uh, Staggering Home, and it was with a, another guy named John. I can't remember his last name, but they were doing a like a McLean and McLean show. It was a blue, it was a comedy parody music show. So there's two comedians essentially, Alan being one and John the other guy, with two guitars, doing a lot of shtick. It was blue in nature, but also parroting uh, like Sesame Street songs. But in so there was blue. a
1: personality oh there, yeah right which is what you, f- between the three of you that were kind of the music and kind of just being really good there was a personality uh, with Alan that
0: yes and uh, there was uh, a
1: draw there there was
0: no one the bar probably had six people in it and yeah. I know one of those one there was two tables one of them was his mom and dad and his sister and um, so the place was empty I was there on my break to get away from the bar I was at which was full at the time and I just wanted to get out of there because there's no dressing room or anything but I walked in and I and, the, and the, he was doing the show honestly like he was in Wembley like he had no sense of proportion
1: that there were only six people in the didn't audience Didn't
0: care didn't care he was transported he was and he had he was one of those few very few people who had enough sense he brought his own lights in cuz all these bars didn't have lights and I had figured this out but most bands played in the dark They really didn't weren't paying attention to what it looked like Alan was like he lit himself up and um you know, played. You know, and I could see right away. as like this guy uh, wants the attention. And if you're in a band, that's a huge asset to have. And they're rare. Like they're, you know, they. Do most
1: people in the band just want to be in the band? Most people they just don't want, want to be. Yeah, fit. it's
0: really not everyone. You know, uh, wants to be the front man uh, or the front woman. Uh, not a, Not most people are not able to. And and a lot of the ones that are able to do that, that have a, a real extrovert personality, that re, that really want that attention, they're probably not good enough singers or players, you know. But Alan had was good enough and on all those levels. So, you know, a lot of the great bands have them, you know, Steve Tyler, Mick Jagger, you know. And I'm I'm not saying Alan is as good as those two guys, but he is that guy, mm-hmm. um, and he is quite good. And we were lucky to find him. And but I uh, so I talked to him, uh, and I knew that. If if we had that, I knew what we were missing, and I sensed that he could fill that hole. And uh, you know, I could go on at length about the pros and cons of mm-hmm. that type of person. Yes. But uh, we will let it rest that he he was a he was he was the man for the job, and without him, we wouldn't have been Great Big C, without a doubt. And uh, how he did was you piece.
1: you approach him when he's finished his performance with six people in the bar and lights on him? how did that formation then happen and how did like the name like i mean it's it's catchy right people you mentioned great big c people know it and there's always a catchy song that they'll sing with it Yeah. how was that what was the start of that like who came up with the name
0: well we didn't first because bob had left and he was gone but myself and daryl and alan had a jam i said well like I, I'm trying to. F- I think we should jam together and see what this is because he was all. He wasn't from the traditional world at all. He was doing like '80s covers, like that was. He was a rocker, rock and roll, uh, '80s rock and roll. And um, so that was a good influence to have. So we, 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 you know, we had a party one night and jammed and figured out what we could do together. I think one of the first songs we learned together was "Lovers in a Dangerous Time." It's a
1: good song.
0: Yeah, and we learned the Bare Naked Ladies version of that.
1: Okay. That, that's yeah, what I, was big I know. At the yeah. Time.
0: So I think that was the first song we learned uh, and that came from his repertoire and we taught him a traditional song, which was probably Mary Mack or something or Patty Murphy. So, but, you know, when we played it together, we were like, wow, one of one thing, first thing happened was everything got faster. And the other thing we were able to do was sing like I could, we had a herma, a unnatural harmony, mm-hmm. uh, which were important in Newfoundland. So, so that worked. You know, we we the musically it worked, and then we just had to do a show. Our first name for the band was Best Kind, Best Kind, which is a Newfoundland Newfoundlandese for we're pretty good.
1: <laughs> really? Say it again.
0: Best kind. Really Best kind. Everything in Newfoundland, you'd say, "How are How are things going? How are you?" And you would answer, "Best kind." Okay. I'm as in I'm fine. I'm fine,
1: or I'm, I'm good, fine. yeah. I'm okay. yeah.
0: And we did a couple of shows at The Rose and Thistle, which again, the Rose and Thistle holds about fifty people. This is a small place, and I've had at least three hundred people tell me they were at those shows, so I'm sure they weren't but uh we did a couple of shows and and we were instantly labeled as St. John's Supergroup because of Rankin Street was a popular band, and now that we had Alan, like we were all gonna be so it was Rankin Street and Staggering Home, and they had their little following too i guess and uh and then Bob came back. Uh, We were doing a talent show opening up for the Irish descendants and he got up on stage with us and played the fiddle at the time or the yeah the fiddle and um, And then it just okay We can do this like we're as good as anyone else is getting record deals. So let's let's make a record So we made a record and we were so by then we'd learned I guess myself and Bob had learned a lot about what could go wrong because we'd spent four years in a band together that didn't go anywhere so we're like, what do we need? We need a record. Why? Because we need to give it to a record company guy to get a record deal. Okay. So we did. And we, we did a, a few gigs and used the money to make a record called, which was the Great Big C record. And, you know, we had that in our hands before we started to play as Great Big C. We had, we had a plan. We had a two-year plan. We sat down with my dad, who, who stood up with like a, a, a Bristol board mm-hmm. or whatever, and here's what we're going to do. Because he was concerned that I would waste my life in this pursuit, But he was willing to give me, or he advised us, like, give it two years. And if you get to these, these are your goals. And we set out. And that's how organized. We were organized. We weren't the most sober bunch. But we were, we had goals and we were determined. And that's why we were successful. Because we were all determined. And our eyes were focused on the same goal.
1: How many years did you find this great, fun success? Like, how long were you kind of feeling like I'm living the life right now? I'm happy, like, happy in terms of... Not yet facing demons, but you're high productive. Your songs are doing well. You're making money. You're touring, uh, and let's just say the you're you haven't overdrank yourself yet. Were uh, there a couple of years? Like, was there a the first?
0: You know, the first ten before Daryl left, there was a different, uh, and and you know that it, it ended. You know, Daryl left when he needed to leave, but it was just. We had a good we our energy at the beginning was so positive and so infectious that that's why we were successful.
1: People just like being around you guys. You were fun.
0: We, we were fun and we were we were we weren't particularly good but we had a super energy and our you know we were like uh, our approach was we couldn't we weren't very good players like we didn't have a Ashley McIsaac. We didn't have a someone who was a, a none no none of us were excellent. Like we didn't have a star player. We could sing and we had, but we had this energy. So we approached traditional music like the Ramones. You know, we had that kind of really simple but fast energy, energy, energy. And that's what singled us out from the polished groups like mm-hmm. Natalie McMaster or the Rankins and stuff. Like they are all really good players, way better players. But we proved that that wasn't all there was. We had something else. We were, we were interesting. We were a little bit dangerous too. Like we were, you know, you've, if you flirted with us, we'd we'd be out with we'd be there. <laughs> like we'd go, we were out for that. We were up for whatever, you know. Uh, we put it all out there. We had nothing to lose. So there was a real recklessness about the band, you know, and uh, which is attractive, I guess, in retrospect. But that, you know, once you, as soon as you get successful and when you have money in the bank and and things aren't risky anymore, that's when you become kind of settled. You know, there's, that's the enemy of art in many ways. The lack of hunger is the worst thing that can happen for a songwriter or a painter, I think, because you're not driven. You're not out there like the wolf hunting, you know, for that next great idea. You become complacent, which is what we did.
1: How many years, though, did you have of a good run? That you would say that it was out, there was energy, you weren't complacent yet, you were having, how many years? This podcast is brought to you by Extension Marketing. They're a new breed of marketing agency that acts as your virtual marketing department, designing and implementing cost-effective marketing strategies that will grow your business. I can speak to this personally as I've been using the Extension Marketing team to help me launch and grow my business. Founder Pat Whalen has been a lifesaver for me, a genuine coach guiding me along the way into uncharted territory. Tell them you're a friend of the show and receive a free one-hour consultation. Check them out at extensionmarketing.com.
0: I would say to be, you know, consistently on, you know, while we were pulling the same the sled the same Mm -hmm. way, and I would say that's the first decade. And after the after the first decade, when Daryl left, that was, you know, that was more damaged than we at the time realized, you know. Um, And it was it was a it was you know we we in many ways we financially we we started to really focus on that part of the thing, of the thing and the machine and how to make the most money. But ultimately, artistically, our our output went down.
1: Uh, you what, how was the, your drinking at that point?
0: Oh, it was, you know, I, I graduated from drinking pints to drinking really expensive scotch because I could afford it. I remember being, there's a bar in St. John's that I kind of became the unofficial owner of, I think. And... uh the Duke, and I remember being out one night, and I was drinking S- Lagavulin or some expensive scotch, and, and uh, someone was someone was like, asked me how much are they anyway, and I looked at the actual owner Terry, who was a great fellow, funny guy, and uh, I said Terry, how much are these? <laughs> And he said, Sean, he just laughed. He said, what What do you care? You don't care. You've never asked that question. You've been drinking here for 10 years. You don't know, and I'm not going to tell you. You I don't just, need to know. You don't need to know. <laughs> exactly.
1: Are you, um, are you married? Like, have you met Andrea at this point yet? Like, no, no, I didn't okay. meet
0: her until, uh, well, I guess it was just shortly after that, though, it was the, the second half of the—so it was at the beginning of— uh, you had some a good ways, decade my,
1: run of being on your own, and things were kind you,
0: of changing. But we were still—I mean, even then, you know—we were still able to. I mean, my songwriting was improving slowly.
1: What were you writing about that it was improving?
0: Uh, more about, I think, concepts—not so much about you drinking. Weren't, you weren't
1: writing yet the types of songs that you wrote. No, I—that—that like, that, 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 that took years to develop.
0: Yeah. But I mean, you know, we got away with a lot on very little, as far as songwriting clout. We had some hokey stuff, but it didn't say much, you know.
1: And no, but it was catchy. I mean, catchy? your songs went on when people, when the bar wanted to kind of get everyone riled up. You know, you put on a great big C, and everyone's jumping up and down. And I know, know
0: but and, that's brand. Uh, what do you call it? Cross pollination. Like we were, what were we selling? now? we were selling beer. We were selling a good time. Mm-hmm. And we wrote songs that sold a good time. So we were a great, I mean, liquor companies and breweries were, loved us. Newfoundland Tourism loved us, you know, and we had a very strong and very simple brand. And it's a brand that doesn't allow for anything negative, really. Like we don't, there was no darkness in any of our lyrics. It was all positive, positive, positive. Everything's cool. You're okay. I'm okay. There's no problems here. Just have a pint and we'll all be good. And here we go and every night you know and uh
1: you almost can try to believe it in a sense you can,
0: well that's what we were selling yeah. you know and uh and uh and quite believably and I guess maybe for a long time I wanted to believe that but that's not the reality and you know um there was no room for the reality for rea- you know what, what we were selling there was no room for actual reality in that in that uh in that product you know so once you when you started to dig into that stuff like you know, let's let's allow for the darkness, that was not going to happen in that band or that brand.
1: No, it couldn't. No. It's not what people were buying.
0: It's not what Warner Brothers wanted to hear. It's not what the band wanted to hear. But I was writing those things. I started to kind of like... Andrea, having met her in Colorado, was a game changer in many ways because I started to, you know, I had a person, I'd found the right person in my life that I could talk to her about anything.
1: So Andrea's from Minnesota, she, she was kind of finding herself in Vail. Is it in Vale that you guys met? Yeah, well, I know was, it was a ski town. Yeah,
0: she was coming out of of a divorce and some family issues of her own. So, so we were kind of well suited, I guess. Yeah,
1: and I think she, I, in the in the midst of it, didn't really quite realize where where she was going. I think she thought. She wasn't quite sure the address or wherever it was that you had I, like said to Like many he lived. Americans
0: her Canadian geography was not strong. So yes. she thought she was going to Finland, I believe.
1: Yes, yes, that was it. She thought she went to Finland and then ended up at the tip yeah, of and, Canada
0: in and land instead, which really there hasn't there's not a whole lot of difference. There's more money in Finland. They they have less <laughs> provincial debt for sure.
1: <laughs> she she finds herself, you know, Leaving behind her life to move to the Rock, you have two kids. You know, well, you have you have Keegan and then you have Finn. Um, we had a
0: lot of fun before they came.
1: <laughs> you did, but you you did. There we was went this together, movie. Like, like
0: three years, I think. Yeah, before we, uh, I don't know how, how how Keegan came about. I don't know how that happened, but um, I'm really glad it did. You know, change. That was another big change.
1: You were still though drinking heavily it was oh, it was, it, yeah it you know uh which is fun at first in a relationship you guys can go and have fun and do anything and then w- when do you think andrea started to go hmm, this isn't quite as normal as us just having a good time and then adulting after you know
0: yeah i think well you have to ask her i guess but so th- so i think three years in is when keegan's came to be and uh you know, there's a pattern behavior now, like I, my level of drink, if you're an alcoholic, you don't really realize or want to realize about what level you're at. And um, I think she may have realized, like, oh, my goodness, what have, what have I entailed here? What, you know, this guy is, he's not going to stop, <laughs> you know, he's not going to change. Um, and I think that is, you know, if you're not an alcoholic, that's not an appropriate way to live. So I think she struggled with that. I was gone a lot, so she was home alone. We ended up getting dogs, which were great. And living things came into my house, and um, she had a positive thing. But, I, you know, she decided she wanted, she wanted to have kids. And then when the kids came, then the drinking became an issue. Like, it became, you know, our lifestyle. Well, as you know, we, this is, this is uh, not something, this lifestyle and, have, and being a parent, that doesn't work. You can't be an, a good parent and be an alcoholic.
1: But your alcoholic was like major benders. Like you could yeah. go, like it wasn't like you would go and then it was just a constant, like you you would go missing.
0: I would go, you know, well, I was gone yes. on the, if I was on the road, mm-hmm. which was every second month for a month, so gone half the time more or less or 40% of the time, you know, I had I could have my benders there and it didn't affect very much, I arguably I would think it made no difference, it probably helped the show in many ways, you know, like it wasn't, it was just that was expected, that was part of the job that's what people wanted to see and people paid to see uh, but coming home, like uh, I was, you know, I was the leader of a kind of a party parade, like in St. John's is full of artists and a lot of them drink a lot so when I came home, I'd be dad I'd be a good dad for till Friday night <laughs> and then, then if I if I came in contact with a few of my buddies, who may or may not have been dads, like once we got going, there was no off switch. So the problem was I could, I could, I could kind of control when I started. But once I started, like, there was no off. There was no stop. So if I had one drink, it was going to go until there was no drinks left every time. So that became and that, you know, obviously became an issue.
1: Did you have any fear having children? I mean, with um, of wanting a certain relationship with your child, of wanting uh, of protecting them a little bit more than maybe I think you felt you were protected. Like when you became a father, was there a reflection on what had happened in your own childhood? Like was it was it in the back of your mind at all?
0: I don't think at first. I think. I think I was kind of blown away and I was un- underprepared, you know, and I still remember seeing when Keegan came out, uh, you know, and he was joined us here. I'm like, oh, my goodness. The, what I realized, this is a relationship that will last forever. I will always be his father. He will always be my son. And that was the first big revelation because I'd never had that relationship before. There's nothing other than death. There will be nothing that will change how we that's that is our relationship you know marriages can end but a, a father to a son you will until you're dead you're always going to be my son so that that really hit me hard it's like okay I'm now in a permanent relationship this is it and uh, I have responsibilities and I would argue that I was always I I met my responsibilities you know to a point uh, but it's only as he grew older as I as I sobered up to get to your point, that's when I started to really focus in on that. Like, how do I protect him from, from what I know to be out there? And I think one of the first things I, you know, they were they certainly weren't baptized. They, they'll never suffer from indoctrination. They'll never, so I had, but my, you know, my parents are still Catholics. They're still religious people, regardless of what happened to me that they know. And uh, it hasn't changed anything there. But so they don't. And as indoctrinated people, what I notice is you just you just don't you, you, you fail. You're kind of tunnel vision. You fail to see any possibilities. You, you, you have a comfort default. And, most, and I don't have that.
1: Oh, yeah, I know that. But most people have a comfort default in general in life. You know, you have your comfort level and then you just for 90 percent of the population, I feel they have a comfort default and they settle, and they don't deal with, and they mask things. Uh, and that's why I find for you to have given up and realized you had to make a massive change. When when did this happen? You got, like, because this is really the turnaround of, of this new life that you have. What what was rock bottom? Like, there, there has to be, right? there. There's always got to be some, I would think. I don't know. I haven't been in this situation. Trigger.
0: The... When I, st- when I turned 40, so when I was like 41, 42, I started to have blackouts, right? So so by then I, I drank enough, obviously. And they were scary, right? But I, I ignored them. I'm like, what, you know, I don't really, uh, uh, they won't always happen, you know, but they started to happen. And uh, as terrifying as they were, I was in- incapable. I still couldn't, you know, press the stop button and, and, and I still let myself start and i was in denial i was an alcoholic i was in denial and uh eventually that that's where the bottom was hit that that is what cost me um that's what brought me out because one of those blackouts put me in um a compromising position it was it it threatened our marriage directly because i was um in i, I was what's i cheated i was in, in infidelity is the word i'm looking for and it was during a blackout, and I'll have to, I take responsibility for it, and um, it was a heartbreaker, you know. Like it was, uh, I knew I knew what I was going to lose, and at the time I didn't even remember what what had happened, which is ridiculous. And and it all came to a head, you know, when I when I admitted it, and I said, you know, I don't know what actually happened, but I'm pretty sure something bad happened here. And I told her, and we were at the, uh, our island in our house in Newfoundland in the kitchen, and it was the, the hardest thing, you know. And I, um, I often joke about it now. I don't joke about it, but I, people, people always ask, you know, how did you quit drinking? How did you finally stop? And um, I always say I embrace my higher power. You know, and uh, November 9th, two thousand and eleven, I had a. Com- I told this tr- told Andrea the truth, like the real truth, and uh, and I knew I could lose her. And I almost did. But the deal was, the ultimatum was: you you put that drink down now, that drink, and you might have a chance. But that's the last drink you'll ever have. That one, and it was I was drinking a. Uh, a glass of white wine. <laughs> so, you know, I put it down. And she had some thinking to do. She went off uh, to Montreal to just kind of decide what she was going to do about this. But it was, you know, it was a really gutting conversation. And she knew she knew what my issues were, and maybe that's what saved me. Maybe that's why she's still here. But I I bought all brown and I, maybe this is I can sing you. This is a song. This is essentially, word for word, the conversation we had. Never saw it coming. Happened so fast. Hit me like a headstone over broken glass. Water is rising. Hard to breathe, one good reason is all I need. Look out the window, touch the pane. Every raindrop calls out your name. See the clouds rolling across the sky. I feel like I'm broken I don't know why You were so hard to hold on to With every tear I cry I start to realize I'll never get over you I remember every minute. I remember the day when I had to admit it and our world blew away. That sinking feeling down on my knees, heart revealing a home in need. You was so hard to hold on to with every tear i cry start to realize i'll never get over you stop looking over your shoulder Someone you won't find I guess we gotta get over ourselves Sometimes So tell me a story And throw me a line I'm tired of keeping Track of your lies I feel like I'm falling into black Give me one good reason and I'll come back. You were so hard to hold on to with every tear I cry. Start to realize I'll never get over you. I guess that's why all Brown's here, um, so I can remember those really horrible times and share them in a way that might make sense. But I can tell you that was a. There's two ways I, that we look at that date. That that. That day, that pivotal day. That's the day I, I. never had a drink since. It's been almost eight years. And uh, and I remember that as, in some ways, it's a positive thing. It's the day I quit drinking and changed my life and, and woke up again and started to do the work. But it's also a a, a terrible day to remember in the sense it's almost the day we, we we got divorced. You know, it was a horribly painful day for us both, for especially for Andrea, who's still here.
1: Yeah. And she's remarkable.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky. I'm like, very lucky.
1: Because I've been around that kitchen table with you guys and seen the family and seen the joy in that house and seen this wonderful relationship that plays back and forth off of each other. And I can't imagine it it not being there. But what you just said is that was when you had to start the work. And I think for a lot of people listening to this, this is their, this is the critical kind of take for, from it the work, <laughs> that work that work. day, the work is the work. And can you take us through what that's like? Because there are people who are so scared to start it, um, who are terrified of the amount of work that it's going to take. Like, what were the steps? I mean, yes, that glass of white wine was put aside and you haven't touched it, but the real work then began. I mean, you had someone that was going to stick by you, but there was a lot of internal turmoil that had to you realized
0: well yeah well people there are people people drink and use drugs for reasons you know and it's a coping mechanism and you know what happened to me after three months of sobriety well the first thing that happened is I lost pretty much every friend I ever had because they were all big drinkers they were all we were of a kind they were part of the scene you know so I was alone. I had Andre and, and the boys and our dogs, but I was I didn't really have any. My phone stopped ringing, you know, in St. John's. And after about three months, I started to remember how I started to drinking. Who poured me my first drink? You know, and uh, I remembered what the priest did, and why I drank, and and I started to have nightmares about that. And I never. Um, that was that was really. Hard, And I didn't have the booze or the drugs to, to kind of take that pain away. So the pain that I would subdued for 30 years was very present. And uh, it was really hard not to drink then. But that's when old Brown came into play.
1: At this point, had you been able to vocalize it? And Only speak to it Andrea.
0: Out? Andrea knew, and I think that's why she stayed. She knew... I was damaged, you know, but she was the only person I've ever told. And I think that's why she uh, showed mercy, you know, or stuck with me.
1: But in that, at that three-month mark, right, when you're alone, you've lost your social gatherings and your crowd and... Uh, and my the, crutch. <laughs> and your crutch. Um, how How were the conversations? Like, how did these conversations evolve to be able to... Is it all through the music? Was it through the writing? I started to focus
0: uh, on writing, this, writing these songs. And uh, I mean, it was just a hard time. At the same time, Great Big C started to have its issues. And that was by and large me.
1: So you're still, as you're going through this sobriety, playing. I'm still you're in still Great Big Sea. At, you're yeah, still I'm, in great, I'm still, still in the band.
0: Uh, I'm still, uh, and that, you know, I,
1: you're probably not as much fun on stage.
0: Uh, I, I tried my best to contribute to, to, I mean, I arguably, I got better at many things. I got in better shape, but you know what? It wasn't, like I said, it wasn't an actor. The bus is a really, uh, the great big sea bus is definitely not a sober place, you know? And, uh, the fact that I sobered up made no difference in how it behaved, so it was a very stressful time, I really stress. So I had this going on and I had my business being a, a very dangerous place for me to be and not a lot of support from within there. And I think the reason for that was because I had, um, you know, I think they they were, I guess they expected me to not be successful. Like me saying I was not going to drink again, they'd heard that before. Because I tried before, you know, I, I kind of wasn't in total denial. I knew like... In fact, I knew it was something I couldn't control. And I think they felt that way, too. So eventually, it would be just a matter of time before I fell off the wagon. So there wasn't a whole lot of focus on my rehabilitation or recovery.
1: There was no support. No, no. No. It was just like, oh, I went out. There, like, we go, there, yeah. there were dibs on when we think McCann's going to fall off yeah, the wagon. Pretty yeah. much, yeah.
0: So, you know, after two years or, of that, then I finally said, okay, enough's enough. You know, this is not where I need, I have to, you know. And that wasn't an easy decision. But before we got to that point, I started to, uh, you know, wrestle with this. And all I really know is that if I hadn't found a way to to come in to terms with what actually happened and to to try and deal with it and, and, and understand why I was drinking, I wouldn't have been able to stop. You know, and I think that's why people fail. To remain sober and uh, a, a large majority of people who are in recovery have have relapses. And I haven't had a relapse and people are like, oh, it'll definitely happen. I'm like, I'm, I don't think it will. And I don't want to be overconfident, but I, you know, it's the not facing the truth that is, that ultimately you don't solve it. You can't solve it. Not that you can really solve a problem, but acknowledging it, you know, understanding why. why. Okay, so now I understand. Why I'm compelled to drink? Okay, now you have at least a chance of not drinking. You know. So now how are you going to deal with it? So for me, it was always, it became music, and it was funny because I never thought it would be because I, I really, if you look at the the vast majority of the catalog, most of the Great Big Sea stuff was literally about drinking and and pointed in that direction. But it's almost like I took the guitar, turned it over, put the strings on upside down, and started to play a different song. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I got to the true meaning of what it's for. Like this is what music is for. Therapy. There, it was. It
1: was. It was your therapy session.
0: Absolutely. And I, again, I haven't really, other than Andrea and this guitar, and my friends, like you, I don't. I. Uh, I don't really see a professional therapist. I've been to a couple of AA meetings. I think they're great. Um, but people always ask me, "What do I do?" And I like, "The answer is simple. Whatever works for you." What worked for me is, is music. Is, is I found a way in and out of these problems, and I can be in the middle of a very hurtful place when I'm with singing like that song I just sang. I am living in that moment again, and I finish the song, and I can walk out of that room again. And every time I do that, I win. You know, I prove that I can be successful. So that's how it kind of works. But everyone's going to be different, and but I think at the core of it is acknowledging the real problem. Not what you want the problem to be or what you want to spin it to be. We live in a world of social manipulation of ourselves. We present certain versions of ourselves that are highly polished. And, you know, the best version of any person, the strongest version of any person, is exactly who you really are. And who I really am is a survivor of sexual abuse and a person who's in recovery from addiction because of it. And that sounds simple to say, but that's really hard for uh, most people to say. I know it because I talk to them. Such a
1: massive battle, and and that's the thing is that you you are talking to them. So when did this your personal journey become the journey of helping others? Because that is where you are making the biggest impact right now. You speak often on mental health issues. You're traveling for this. You're speaking um, with different groups and organizations. So how did that take on its Take on its life, which I still think is your best therapy. And even though you're helping others, every time you're doing it, there's you're healing yourself.
0: Definitely. Um, yeah, I'm not. Afraid, I guess I'm not afraid to live in that, in my truth. I've learned how to do it, and I wouldn't do it without this guitar in my hands. And I always bring it whenever I do a speaking engagement. It's I don't have a script or anything. I just kind of have my truth, and I also have a catalog of songs. And part of what I always do is get people to sing, to prove my point. Like this works. And uh, I'd show people the power of music, but it, you know it all starts with the truth. And I, I just I, I, people started to ask me, certainly after I became I came out about it and was and was open to the public about it, which started back at the I was invited to speak at a London Ontario London recovery breakfast. And you know what happened? A person got up. I was going to speak about addiction. This was mm-hmm. for the recovery community in London. And uh, and I'd been open about my addiction. I just hadn't said any why. Why,
1: right? There hadn't been a public acknowledgement.
0: No. And this guy, Paulie O'Byrne, who was uh, abused by a hockey coach. He was the opening act. He got up. He was going to say five minutes before I was going to, you know, they knew I wanted to help yourself. The record was out. It was viewed and reviewed as a as a as a as a recovery album. So this is why I was invited there. It was my first speaking engagement. And this guy got up, and he quite frankly told the truth about what happened to him. And my eyes were opened; I was blown away by how honest he was, and that he just said it. And what was? And he said it, and he didn't catch fire. He didn't die. He said it, said it, and walked off that stage and sat down right next to me. And I realized that I could say I, I should do this. Like I, I can. And I got up, and I didn't think anything of it. But I, I, I told for the first time the truth. And it was just a huge relief.
1: It hadn't been premeditated. It hadn't thought it through. You just.
0: I i knew that that's something I should do. I think I thought about it, but I, I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't seen somebody do it. So when I get up and I do and I learned. So that was a huge mm-hmm. game changer. Like, it really did you helps kind of you call Andrea
1: someone? after that and just be just to, just to let you know?
0: Yeah.
1: The gig went a little different than I thought it was today.
0: Yeah. I remember we were working on what I was going to say and. And what and of course what I didn't what I actually right, what said was <laughs> very different. And there was fallout. That's you know, that hit the news and my parents, you know, it all came out on Twitter and stuff. So that's how I had to kind of put out those fires and actually deal with the aftermath, which was great. But it was worth it because the truth was out there then. Okay, here's what happened, guys. In case anyone was wondering, this happened and so be it. Like that's that's that was a huge leap forward. Uh, And by doing what I do now, the fact that I'm able to get up there, the guy from Great Big Seagull get up and speak his truth and walk off the stage. You know, if I can quit drinking, anybody can, if that guy can, you know, and uh, I think it's important for people to see that. Certainly people in mental health who have issues and addiction issues in particular to see that that guy can can do it and to see how to see someone really be truthful even though it's painful um that's powerful that has an impact and that and and I think that's why I feel like I have a sense of purpose now i can i can help people not like a doctor can i don't think but i can help people by because i'm a human being and i and i know that everyone feels pain and everyone avoids it but I, what i've learned is that you can't really fix it unless you you do it right, so I just do it.
1: You did it on that stage that first time, of which this guy was the you know, hearing it spoken out loud, and that they didn't what was his name? The
0: Paulio Byrne, yeah.
1: So he's, you, he's you, still but, out there doing it, he's right? But you have become the Paulio Byrne for a lot of people because you stand on stage and then you have people come up to you afterwards,
0: yeah. A and a lot of people will tell me and for the they first tell time. you
1: their story for the first time. What Responsive. And it always feels better for them. Does it feels better for them? What happens to you?
0: Uh, it's it's always hard to hear. And it t- it, it, it's something you take on. But at least I have compassion for those. Like I have, I understand. And I know what it's like to say it. You know, it's really hard to say the truth. Like it's hard to say it. And you know what? You can say it all you want. And, and, and for many people, they don't care what the truth is. You know, uh, my parents still struggle with, with the truth, like they still can't really. It's not something we talk about. Like it's okay. Well, let's move along. People hear what they want to hear. So you have to. You have to face your truth for yourself, and expect that you may not even be heard. But you still you will hear you. It's still important because if you if you don't acknowledge what it really is, how are you going to fix it? All you're going to do is throw money at it or or. Dance around the issue, but and and put band-aids on this flare-up and that flare-up. Get to the core of the problem, the real pain. And uh, you know, I, I think in this world today, like again, you know, we live in a world where alternate facts are a thing. This is this is how you know we. This is a this is something we live with. Spin is everything. If you look at American politics. The truth about like what just happened with uh, Christine Blasey Ford, whether you believe her or not, and I do. Um, what happened there, and how it's even uh, even as of today, and I'm not sure when this podcast is going to happen. That was, it's that was the truth comes out, a truth exists, and two sides start at it and fight about it. You know, and it becomes a political football. So the truth today is under more duress, the actual truth, than it ever has before. And as parents, you and I know that we're dealing with a different generation. Um, But I know that the truth, there is only one truth. Like in any given circumstance, one thing is true. One fact is true. And if we can't get to what that is and that becomes a moving target, then the solution is not achievable. So it's it's the most important thing. And it's the hardest thing to do. The reason we avoid it is because it's hard.
1: Where do you get the greatest satisfaction now? I mean, I know there was satisfaction being up on that stage and having a good time and seeing the entire bar jumping up and down to your song. Where is your satisfaction now?
0: I can't get no... <laughs> <coughs> I... Uh, I really love being in a small hall, um, you know, just singing, just being my, the best version of me is on stage and I just, I want to be there with old Brown and I love when I'm able to light up a room and reach out and emotionally like grab people's hearts, squeeze them a little bit and let them go.
1: When they come to see you, are they looking to be inspired? Are they looking, oh my God, it's Sean McCann. He's going to play a great big C song. Or are they looking to hear your story? Like, what do you anticipate? When you look at at that audience, what do you think they're hoping to get from you?
0: I've learned not to anticipate. Uh, I I look at, I I reserve the right. I always write out like a list of songs Mm -hmm. because if I don't, I forget that I know any. (laughs) So I write out the list of songs that I want to sing. And I bring them up and I lay it on stage in no particular order. And then I do what I think is going to connect most. By, and, but I, the first thing I do, and I always tell the light guy, I need to see everyone's face. So you okay, can't be yeah. black. So I get a little light, and then I see and I assess the situation. And I have so many songs that I.
1: So you 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 look at your crowd. You see who's in the audience.
0: Yeah, and, and you know I guess the difference. What I what what I do now is is it is a interactive experience. I see real power in conversation and what we're doing actually here. Uh, and I want that to be the case. And I know what the alternative is: is if I go out and just hammer it in, and push my agenda at an audience. That's another way. Usually, it's solved with a drummer and volume. Like you can just be that, and maybe then maybe you know you just dumb it down. There is one message. I've been in that band, and I'm done with that. I find great power when someone can be genuine. I'm most moved when I see people genuinely affected whether it be cracking them up or making them cry but i want to I want to affect people on a deeper level and that's why i say more and that's why i remain unscripted because you can't you can't really go out there and premeditate that i think you have to be in the moment you have to really be present and that's hard to do too but i've found how to i whatever reason by acknowledging my own truth i can let myself be vulnerable i've learned that uh, and I do it every night, whether I'm speaking at a breakfast t- speaking mm. event or I'm doing Almond Town Hall on a Saturday night. I get there by making myself vulnerable, and that's that has an impact on people. People see that if it's real, you know. And that's the just gotta get, gotta get the real. And but that's why I show up with just this. I don't have. I could have a band. I don't. I don't. I don't need one anymore. That's not the power I'm looking for. The power I'm I'm trying to get out there is from the the middle of me. And I'm trying to get to the middle of you. And I want to squeeze your heart and let it go and light you up. I want to melt that room.
1: Uh, We've had interesting conversations. I mean, you were one of the first people I talked to when I was going through my transition. And I was kind of like, you know what, Sean? Like, this is where I'm thinking. I know
0: exactly how it feels.
1: You know, like, and we had these conversations, and there was a lot of talk, you know, about you know letting go of ego, and uh, you know, and realizing relationships are going to change, and the people who you thought were going to be, you know, a support system have not been. You like, it's, it's. Um, I think authenticity, um, is what people I think like and are drawn to in an individual, and I think the crowds appreciate that. With you,
0: I, be- I believe that. It's what I'm drawn Hmm. to, and and you are. But I I mean, I hope I hope that that's where we end up. But you know, the world, what seems to win a lot of the times is not authentic, and even if we know it, you know, it still works on us in many ways. Uh, But I still think it's the most important thing. To be authentic, it's rare to find, and but it's within it's it's within us to be that it's facing up to who you really are.
1: When uh, you're not with the guitar, like, and you're in, in the, I know that you run, I like when you're, when you're running, cause I know you need the physical release also, right? Like there's been, and you said you got in good shape and you're kind of in, different in that sense. Like, what are you listening to? Like what, it's cause you're not listening to your songs. I don't Are listen
0: you, to any. When I like run, when, it's always outdoors, so I don't. Okay,
1: so you nothing. It's just you and your thoughts. The
0: birds, oh wind. my god, that's
1: killer! Really, you can take that in. I need like, some, I need something pushing me. You, what's pushing you? Uh,
0: I don't like. I don't, I, I literally I, part of the running thing for me is I don't like running indoors, so so it's always outdoors. I don't run much in the in the winter, which is a drag because I don't like the gym. Like being indoors is not. I have a machine that I use at home, but I. It's all part of it. I think being in nature uh, uh, is a, is a big deal. Uh, movement is a big deal, um, and I've learned that from. I've met some really cool people, like you, uh, along the way. And one of them um, taught me a huge lesson. And that I, music is medicine for me, but movement is medicine for a friend of mine named Clara Hughes, who's an Olympian. And um, you know, she's she got She got to keep moving. But she's just being out out in nature. Being physical, again, is something that's, you know, as parents, it's really hard to get to get your kids to do that. You know, the digital world is so compelling, so fascinating, so seductive. But, you know, there's digital addiction is a big thing now. And and if you talk to the counselors, what's the what's the how do you treat it? Go outdoors. So, Get so for me, be outdoors, be in nature. I do miss that about Newfoundland, and uh, I love Ontario. is beautiful, but it's like every acre of land is literally spoken for. Where I come from, ninety percent of the province of Newfoundland is crown land, so anybody can be there, dogs off leash, in any capacity. You can sleep there, and uh, for I live in St. John's, which is right downtown, ten minutes drive in any direction, and you're in the middle of nowhere. And I think it's important to put yourself there every now and then.
1: In the middle of nowhere. In
0: the middle of nowhere. Whether that's on a kayak out in the St. Lawrence or in the woods where you're just nowhere, where you can't hear a sound other than the birds and the bees and whatever else is out there, and that's why I keep getting drawn to the mountains and, and back to Newfoundland and into nature. I think it's a big, a big help to our mental uh, abilities. I don't, like the screens for me are um, it's a double-edged sword. I, I promote there, tell people that's where everyone is on Facebook. You know, Facebook tells me my big demographic is women age 45 to 54. But it's really hard to get them to come to shows. They all comment on every post uh, and they're supportive. But to get them to come to the show is a big deal because Facebook is so freaking awesome, <laughs> right? <clears throat> but it's not its not healthy to be there all the time. It can't, you can't do on Facebook what you can do face-to-face. You just can't.
1: People are going to look at this or listen to this podcast, what what three things, if I can put you on the spot, do you want them to take from this about facing adversity, about living in a dark place? Like what what could you say to them?
0: Probably the, the thing that my kids say to me before I go on stage, whether it be speaking or playing, every time they call me or text me and say, one thing, don't give up don't give up, don't give up dad. And I think you can solve a lot of problems (laughs) because I'm not the smartest tool in the shed, the sharpest tool in the shed, but I didn't give up. And sheer persistence uh, can get you a long way. And I would argue that great big C got a long way because of persistence more than skill, you know. So don't give up is a big deal. Two, we're stronger than you think. We're pretty tough. Human beings are really tough. And the stuff we put ourselves through, literally, um, even if we just eliminate the stuff we choose to do that's negative, whether that be diet or fitness or, you know, our work habits, you know, we, we've, we already, without even realizing, you look at your any given life, you probably survived more than you think. You know, we're tougher than we know. We're very much strong. We're strong. And uh, if we forget that, that's when we falter. So believe that you're strong because you are. And because, you know, the other thing would be just you have to do the work. And the work is always truth-based. If it's some kind of fiction, you're going to be off target and you're going to waste your energy. So make sure your, your target is the truth, the real truth then you'll be successful then the work begins
1: I haven't even I don't even know what time Veronica hasn't even let me know oh gosh
0: <laughs> like two hours. I
1: didn't even look over I'm like I don't even want to know what time it is I'm gonna let you finish just just sing us out I'm I'll just sing us for a second I just want to say oh my gosh I don't even think I mentioned what episode we were at. I was just so into You started singing a guitar. So, this was episode 36 of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang. What?
0: I'm not number one? <laughs> you, I'm number 36. You knew about, you knew about
1: <laughs> Living Your Life with Leanne Lang before it was even conceptualized. Do you remember that? Kind of sitting around a table going, what am I going to do? Uh, please like, subscribe, uh, any comments, uh, let your friends know about the podcast. It's so nice to see it growing. Um, and it's persistence right just keep on people but i'm realizing as i'm looking in this world um sometimes you need some help from people on the outside so if you can like or subscribe uh, let people know about the podcast that would be incredibly great and of course thanks to extension marketing uh for always taking on the role as uh, being a proud sponsor and supporter of this sean mccann i do love you dearly i love your family i can't wait for the next uh, little round table at one of our kitchen tables what song are you going to leave us with
0: I'm gonna sing this one because I I know the path you're on I know and you're on the right one and I know you're gonna be successful because we're made of more than blood and bone we're made of love you know I love you you know I care you know I miss you I'm not there. I carry you with me everywhere I go because I love you. And now you know I climb the mountains, I cross the sea, the lonesome valley and the Grand Prairie I carry you with me for all to see because I love you Leanne you can count on me I've done so many miles alone I've learned so many things I should have known I let myself get let off track But you keep me coming back You know I love you You know I care no, know I'll miss you when you're not there. I carry you with me everywhere I go. Because I love you. I am not alone.
1: Thanks for having me on your show. I remember that song. Thanks, Ron. It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, anyone can be a cash kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast.